Okay, so today's reading is from James 1, chapter 1, verse 1 to 12. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes scattered amongst the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wildflower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and, wizard, and withers the plant. Its blossom, fails, its, its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test of that, that person will receive the crown of life and that the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, these are hard words, and um, your word is challenging to us. So I pray um, in your grace and in your mercy that you would open our eyes to what you have to say to us today and you would give us um, hearts that are able to trust you. Amen. Amen. Right. So our vision, um, which we outlined, I think, in September, uh, is based around some words which I, I hope are starting to become uh, familiar to you. They're built on an understanding of what the Bible teaches about what it means to be a Christian. Um, part of the body of Christ, his church. And there are all sorts of activities associated with Christianity, Sunday worship, reading the Bible, praying, you know, sharing bread and wine, social justice, creation care, demonstrating the kingdom of God, proclaiming Jesus as Savior and Lord to the world. And there are doctrines and belief structures and ethics, but at its most basic level, being a Christian in the narrative of the Bible, though, Christian was not a word used very much back then. In fact, it wasn't used um, at all until the church, the, the, the gathered, the ecclesia, had really begun to spread as the persecutions ramped up. But if you had to give a definition of a Christian from the New Testament, what you would come up with is something along the lines of this. A Christian is a disciple or follower or apprentice of Jesus. One who sits at his feet and learns in community, his ways, through listening and through practice, with the goal of imitating him. 
That's the first century Middle Eastern concept of discipleship. If you're interested in this, do you go back and listen to our, our vision series from last September where we looked at it in more depth. So that's what a disciple is. And, and Jesus gave his first disciples, both men and women, the mission to make more disciples who make more disciples, who made more disciples, reaching right down to us today, 2,000 years on, along with billions across the world from every tongue and tribe and nation, just as he said. And you know, it's an amazing claim and prediction by this sort of itinerant preacher from a backwater of an unfashionable part of an occupied territory, relatively small and insignificant country in the Middle East. You know, Jesus' ministry lasted three years and it culminated in his execution. It was a pretty bold claim for him to say that his kingdom would spread to the ends of the earth. And yet here we are today. And for us, as for every disciple in every age and culture, our task is to figure out today in our unique context and setting what it means to be with Jesus, to become like him and to do what he did. That's something that we're called to do in community, um, which is why we're really pushing our connect groups. At the moment, connect groups are just small group communities where we share something of life together and help each other to become disciples of Jesus through all the ups and the downs and the challenges and the trials and the joys. Speak to any mature disciple of Jesus and they will tell you that small group community has been an essential part of their story and growth. It's almost like a, you know, a relational God created us for relationship and that's where we thrive and where we grow that's another sermon but discipleship is something we do together and this process of figuring out what it means to follow Jesus in each new setting and era it's exactly what the New Testament was written for epistles or instructional letters like this one from James which we're going to look at this term they were written in the decades immediately following Jesus' death and resurrection by the early leaders of the church to articulate and teach discipleship uh, to Jesus in their world. So when we get into this, what we're seeing is people addressing the same questions that we are asking today. How to be a disciple of Jesus, although in a different time and culture. So there's work for us to do to understand the context in which these letters were written and then to apply them to our lives today. But to return just one last time, or for this morning, one last time to this vision, we're taking these three goals a term at a time this year. So last term, we were looking at what it means to be with Jesus. We looked at these ancient practices that help us develop our relationship with him. And then in Lent, we were looking at what it meant to take up our cross and walk with Jesus on his road to crucifixion, which he, in fact he said his disciples must also do. The whole discipleship thing is based on this starting point of being with Jesus. You know, without that, the rest is just kind of meaningless religion. Everything we look at this term will only make sense with Jesus. So this term, we're um, turning to part two, the becoming like Jesus. And uh, we're going to do that mostly through this book, the book of James, but we'll also have a few diversions along the way. Um, we'll take a, a deeper look at giving and stewardship. Uh, back in the autumn, we had a month where we asked people to consider their financial giving, um, and there was an amazing response to that, um, which we haven't fully shared with you yet. As you come to the APCM, you'll probably hear more about that there. But I was conscious that we were asking that 
from people without really giving a deeper rationale for giving as part of discipleship. So we're going to do some of the background work on that in June. We'll call that that's giving like Jesus. So we're also going to briefly look at prayer in May where we engage with the church's um, national prayer campaign, um, which they do each year in May called Thy Kingdom Come. So this term we have living like Jesus, giving like Jesus, and praying like Jesus. So it's all about um, becoming like Jesus, that second part of the vision. So let's get stuck in. One of the strongest, most visceral images I have from this week was the launch of the SpaceX super heavy booster with their Starship mounted on top. Did anyone, did you see this? Put your hand up if you saw this. Okay, so some of you saw this. This was just after lunch on Thursday, I think. If you didn't see it, this is what happened. So the first thing to know is that this is a system that is being designed not only to deliver huge payloads of satellites into space, but also to eventually create the possibility of human mission to Mars. It's the biggest rocket ever launched um, in terms of height, weight, and power. And SpaceX said before the launch that a win would be, quote, we don't destroy the launch pad. After clearing the tower, everything else was to be considered a bonus. So, Starship Super Heavy did, in fact, clear the launch pad. Oh, we don't need the sound, I think. Okay. Um, we'll be a bit slowly, because it turned out that six of its 33 motors failed to work properly, which meant that after a flight of four minutes... You see it going up very slowly there. That's not on slow motion, that's the actual speed. At an altitude of 39 kilometers, it became clear it wasn't going to make orbit. And it began to spiral and descend rather quickly. So the only option was to activate Starship's emergency explosives, triggering what they call in the industry a RUD, which is R-U-D. And that stands for a rapid, unscheduled disassembly which you can see happening now. They blew it up. Now, um, you didn't hear the, the sound from that, but if you were watching live and you did hear the audio, the sound that came... You don't need to watch it again. The sound that came from SpaceX HQ at the moment of destruction. And it was the sound of whooping and cheering by the people who had built it. Starship's rapid, unscheduled disassembly provoked an outpouring of joy and celebration. So just keep that image in your mind as we look at these opening verses from James's epistle. So some notes on James as we start. James was the half-brother of Jesus. Um, in a sense, that's why I'm choosing to preach on this letter on this subject of living like Jesus. James wasn't just a sort of a keen student who'd swallowed the textbook. He uh, grew up with, he knew intimately the real Jesus. Um, there's no hiding from siblings, is there? Um, our boys know each other so well, especially each other's weak points and failings, which they frequently highlight and ruthlessly exploit. <laughs> James got it with Jesus. He knew who he was. And he was this leader in the church in Jerusalem, the original Christian community. And as the early Jewish converts were scattered by persecution, we looked at this in the series on Acts in the autumn, it's Acts 8 if you want to go back and look at that, James remains in Jerusalem as leader of that church. 
So in the introduction, we, we heard him says he's writing to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. So that means Jewish believers across the region who have been scattered by persecution. And we know that the Jerusalem church was having a really hard time of it. Um, they experienced persecution, but they also went through um, a, a quite long period of famine and poverty as well, a, a regional kind of cost of living crisis, you might say. And his letter was all about living wisely in tough times. So that's where we're starting today. And um, there's more to say about James. We'll save that for next week or the coming weeks. So this is James's opening one-liner. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. And straight away, James has thrown us this curveball. Be happy, essentially, with difficult circumstances. Mm, okay. So let's just break it down a little bit. First, consider it, um, or, or count it, is another way of translate, translating that. The Greek word gives an idea of an accountant doing their sums. Um, on Tuesday, the APCM, the church accounts for 2022, will be reported. Phil's done all the sums. He's listed all the income against all the expenditure. Phil, how's the balance look? No, don't answer that right now. James is saying that when you do a calculation of your trials, the kind of the, the positives and the negatives, if you do that in the light of God's perspective, you will come out in profit. Essentially, he's saying that pain has the potential to leave us in credit. Do I, I, I always get confused by it. Do I mean credit? Is credit good or is credit bad? Debit? As in more than you don't have, whatever. No wonder the church finances. Pray for Phil, our treasurer. He's got to deal with this. So hold that thought. So next, consider it. So consider it pure joy. So the idea is not just to bear with trials, but to actively be happy about them. It's a little bit like cheering when a rocket that you have spent billions building fails and experiences a rapid, unscheduled disassembly. Consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. So no, not if, but whenever. James is saying that whatever your circumstances right now are, you will face trials. I love the honesty of this. Um, in my last church, there was a, a guy called Alan. Alan actually grew up in Richmond. Um, I asked him about it before we moved. Um, he was at one time a, a Royal Navy helicopter pilot. I, he flew, I think, in the Falklands conflict. And he helped with the youth. Um, he was one of our youth volunteers. And one night around the, the fire pit, it was in lockdown, so we were meeting outside around a fire pit in winter. I asked him if he'd ever crashed his helicopter. And he said this, so there are only two types of helicopter pilot, those who have crashed and those who haven't yet but will one day. And he told a story about this uh, flight when both engines failed. Actually, I think one engine failed and the instructor shut down the wrong engine, something like that. We um, live in a culture that is in denial about suffering. Um, it's not so much that we don't believe that suffering exists, but rather the secular world has very little to say about it beyond keep calm and carry on. The best we've come up with in response to the inevitable tragedies of life is the famous British stip, stiff upper lip. There is nothing positive secular society has to say about suffering, only avoid it for as long as possible. And there was actually some research on this that somebody who took the five major worldviews in the world, um, and they, 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 they reckon that the, the, the Western secular worldview is the least well-equipped to cope with suffering. 
Jesus said to his disciples, in this world you will have trouble. James is saying the same. Just as Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil things against you because of me, rejoice and be glad. James is saying, consider it pure joy when you face trials. Next week we'll get into the nature of some of those trials and difficulties a little more, but let's take it at face value for now. Why on earth, James, should we uh, consider hardship pure joy? Verse 3, because, he says, you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. The Greek word for perseverance is um, steadfastness or capacity to stay firm, to stand firm. Why is that a good thing? Verse 4, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Okay, so now we've come to it. This is the goal. This is the outcome that Jesus, that James wants for us, that Jesus wants for us in our trials. Maturity, completeness, wholeness. That's what this is all about. It's about formation. Now, of course, this is the opposite of what the secular world has to say about pain and suffering. From that perspective, suffering robs us of wholeness. James is saying, in God's economy, suffering can make us more whole. Trials, he says, can give us something that we are lacking and will continue to lack without them. So let's break this down for a moment. Life is not easy, okay? Let's just acknowledge that for a moment. But when the highest value placed on life is happiness and pleasure, which is essentially the the Western worldview, then there is a mismatch between the expectation and the reality. One sociologist put it like this, happiness is reality minus expectation. We know this from the ups and downs of parenting our children. You know, the hardest days are often the ones that follow the good days. So if we've had a week or two of, you know, the the kids tearing each other apart a little bit, then we kind of adjust to that and we learn to deal with that. And then if there's a better day, which is great, then it's the next day when it's hard again that we find really, really hard. Maybe the same if you've got, you know, sleep babies who are not sleeping. Then you have one good night and your expectations change. And then the next night when they don't sleep, it's really, really tough. So if the goal of happiness is expected, then ultimately that expectation is going to outstrip the reality, making happiness impossible in the long run. Happiness is a goal that cannot live up to its own expectations, ultimately. Like the helicopter pilot, we've either already been disappointed or we will live long enough to be disappointed someday. In a broken, suffering world, happiness and pleasure will ultimately remain unfulfilled. We may find ways of postponing suffering um, or keeping it at arm's length. Wealth, for example, uh, James talks about here. But he says here in verse 11 that the rich are going to fade away just as much as the same as, as those who suffer poverty today. It's only a temporary fix. However, God, James says, has something better for us. Where the world makes the goal of pleasure or happiness, God makes the goal of maturity. It's all about who we become or who we are becoming. And as disciples, if the goal is to become like Jesus, success is defined as becoming Christ-like. 
And so it shouldn't surprise us to learn that becoming like Christ will, in some way, involve suffering, right? Because suffering was a defining experience of Jesus, the cross, his passion. The word passion literally translates as suffering. And he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. So it follows that suffering will in some way be bound up with becoming like Jesus. So where do we go with this? This is not easy It's not an easy start from James at all, but it is real, and I'd argue that it's realistic. So what is the roadmap to becoming mature through suffering? How do we learn to um, suffer lovingly that which we cannot change, as um, John Mark Comer puts it? Here are three ideas um, for us to finish with. The first is community. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. James is not talking to secular individuals. He's talking to the church, the body of Christ, the community of disciples of Jesus. Social psychologist uh, James Pennebaker conducted some research into trauma. We know that um, pain, which is our kind of lived experience, and suffering, which is the meaning that we give to our pain, um, leads to trauma. And in this study, Pennebaker and his colleagues, they studied trauma recognizing that people who suffer trauma, some are more affected by trauma than others. And their thesis as they went into this research was that the traumas that held the highest social stigma would be the hardest ones to recover from. So they looked at specific traumas like sexual assault and suicide. But what they found is that the type of suffering or trauma had very little to do with the length of recovery from it. There was no correlation between the nature of the trauma and the recovery from it. Instead, the number one factor in recovery from trauma was having people to process the pain with. The key factor in dealing well with suffering and healing from trauma was community. Having a relational home to take your pain to. Having people to hold you in your trauma. You know, this is part of what made the pandemic so hard, wasn't it? The isolation amplified the impact of trauma and delayed the recovery. James is writing about suffering to a community of people who were in relationship with each other. Sticking together, sharing life in community is critical for dealing with trials. Again, let me repeat what I said earlier about connect groups and sharing life with one another. Christians will suffer. God is able to bring something good out of suffering. But this will only happen in the context of community. Church should be, quote, a thick web of interdependent relationships. Is that your experience of all souls? If not, let's change that. So first, stick together. Um, Second, stick at it. Um, Don't give up. As James says in verse 4, let perseverance finish its work. Don't give up on God. As Corrie ten Boom, who suffered in um, a World War II concentration camp, losing her mother and sister there, she said this, when the train goes through the tunnel and it gets dark, you don't throw away your ticket and jump off. You sit still and you trust the engineer. Perseverance is the point. In verses 5 to 8, James says, he talks about, in the midst of our suffering, we should ask God 
for wisdom because when we suffer it's hard to keep trusting God's wisdom can God really want the best for me this is unbearable and James says ask God for his wisdom and don't doubt him stand firm you know this is Adam and Eve in the garden all over again tempted to throw the towel in and stop trusting God's goodness take the fruit you know in suffering we can doubt God's good intentions for us and start going our own way maybe you're going through a season of what feels like unbearable suffering right now I realize I've been talking about trials and pain and suffering in the abstract you know what we're talking here about here are real this is real life you know this persecutions and temptations and sickness and aging and bereavement and betrayal and family problems and financial problems you name it we know what we're talking about here and I'm not questioning how hard these things are how profound the pain and the suffering is the question is when they come when they hit us which they will will we give up on God and throw away our ticket or will we press in and let perseverance finish its work this is really difficult stuff but James says ask God for wisdom and trust he will give it so that you can stand firm not blown around like waves on a sea so stick together stand firm third keep your eyes on the prize this is how the passage ended verse 12 blessed is the one who perseveres under trial because having stood the test that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him NT Wright says you don't test something unless you're doing something serious or intending to do something serious the rocket that blew up after four minutes into its flight will one day it is hoped take people to the moon and to Mars that's the goal it's a bonkers goal you might think that it's a pointless goal but it's a serious goal the joy in that failed test the whooping and cheering from all the people who were running it who had built it who had put it together who had designed it came from the knowledge that that dramatic failure was a step in the direction to achieving that goal the goal for us is the crown of life the goal is maturity as disciples of Jesus to become like him in our sufferings to um, scriptures to finish with and then we'll move into a time of response and um, Andy and Sarah why don't you guys come up so this is um, Paul speaking in Philippians 3 again somebody else who knew a lot about suffering he was writing this from prison he said this I want to know Christ yes to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead not that I've already obtained all this or have arrived already arrived at my goal but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me and then just the last one and um, this is Hebrews 12 1 to 3 and um, the writer to Hebrews has just written a whole piece about the great heroes of the faith from uh, the story of Scripture therefore they say um, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles let us run with perseverance 
the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart.